Good morning, I'm Larry Castle. This is Ken Brown. Thanks for joining us for episode 16 of That's a Good Question, where we'll talk about the question, why are we so hesitant to share the gospel? Pastor Ken, today on That's a Good Question, we're going to talk about a question uh, that many of us makes us feel guilty. We know we ought to be sharing the gospel with our family, with our friends, with those that people uh, God brings into our circle of influence, uh, but we're hesitant to do so, or we don't do so as often as we think we should. And so we want to talk about that today, and uh, later on we'll get into even talking about uh, some ways that practically you can actually have that conversation with people. But first, let's talk about that. Why are we so hesitant to share the gospel? Well, I've got a couple of pieces of good news on that. One is that we're in good company if we have some trepidation about sharing the gospel. And that's because the Apostle Paul himself asked for prayer in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 20. He said, pray for me that I'm quoting, I may declare the gospel fearlessly. And that implies that even Paul had some fear. And the second piece of good news is that this fear, this sense of inadequacy can be overcome if we remember that we're always at an advantage when we're talking with an unbeliever. And so we really have no reason to be intimidated. Can we stop and talk about that for a moment? Why is it that we would be at an advantage to an unbeliever in this conversation? Well, yeah, it's a good thing to ask. It's a good thing for us to think about a bit because it's going to help us in our interactions with uh, unbelievers if we have the, a good understanding of why we really have no reason to fear. We have no reason to be intimidated when we have an encounter with, with an unbeliever. And we're at an advantage because we know the unbeliever really better than he or she knows themselves. God has told us in scripture about people. He's told us what makes people tick. And then we can bring that knowledge with us in every engagement that we have with an unbeliever. Romans 1 tells us what the bottom line problem that every person enters the world with. And that is namely that we're separated from God because of sin. We don't become sinners, we are sinners. It's our, our very nature. And until our relationship with God is reconciled, then literally nothing can be as it should. Even when things are good, they are not as good as they could and should be if we are not right with God in our relationship. Hmm. The Bible teaches in Romans 1 that this alienation from God results in three things that are true of all unbelievers, every last one. And every believer, because we have access to Romans 1, then knows these things about the unbeliever before we ever talk to them. Let me quickly go through those. Romans 1 teaches, first of all, that the unbeliever knows God. The unbeliever knows God. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 says, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Because for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So the Bible is saying very clearly that 
everybody knows God. Uh, the psalmist said the same thing in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Everyone is able to, to see that. So everyone knows God. But here's the second thing we know about the unbeliever. They don't want to know God. Romans 1 verse 18 says that people suppress the truth. And when it says they suppress the truth, it means they hold it down. They repress it. Now, we many of us have heard of the psychological uh, category of repressed memories. Well, God says that's really the kind of thing that people do with him. Because of sin, because we come into the world alienated from God, then we don't want to think about God. And so later in Romans chapter 1, verse 28 says, people do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. And that's why you hear people say things like, I don't like to talk about religion. It really should be the most natural thing in the world to talk about. We were made by God. We were made for relationship with God. But because of sin, that alienation means I don't want to talk about God. I don't want to think about God. Well, I'm, I'm reading everybody's mind at home now. And so people are wondering, <laughs> uh, so, okay, people don't want to talk about religion. How, are my, how am I supposed to talk to them about the Lord? This is what I was afraid of. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, thankfully, I said there were three things that we know about the unbeliever. So I've just given two. The first one is they know God. The second one, yeah, they don't want to know God. But uh, here's the, the third thing that we know about them. And that is that, uh, and I'm just using the Bible's language here, that, that people outside of Christ are fools. That is, they're foolish in the way that they live. It says in verse 22, Romans chapter 1, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That means that people have made a mess of their lives because they don't use what God has given as intended. And that's what foolishness is. It's failure to apply what we know. Uh, those of you that are affiliated with our church, you have heard me say over the years that wisdom is the application of knowledge. So wisdom is not just information. It's not knowing. It's, it's doing with what you know. It's applying what you know. And then foolishness is the opposite. It's failure to apply what we know. That's why the Bible says in Psalm number 14, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. It's not that he doesn't know, but rather he does know there's a God, but he's unwilling to apply what he knows. He's unwilling to think about what he knows and place God at the center of his life. And because God is not at the center of people's lives, then they use what he has given for their own purposes rather than for God's. And so by definition, they're distorting it. Here, here are a few examples. Take marriage. Marriage was given by God. It's God's gift to humanity. It's to be used for his purposes. But people want to use marriage for their own purposes, and they come into it with their own agenda rather than following God's agenda. And as a result, marriages are distorted. Marriages are, are a mess. Uh, sex. Sex is a gift from God, but it's to be used according to his design and in the way that he has prescribed. But as we know, in a sex-crazed world like we live in today, people use sex to their own advantage without consulting God's standards at, at all. Money. Money is a good thing. It's a, a blessing. It can be used for, uh, for great good. But again, we know that people come to love money and what money can do for them without reference to God. And the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, the Bible says. So here you have these what are called common grace things. 
they're not just things that are gifts given to Christians, marriage, sex, money. Even if you're an unbeliever, you have access to those, you have those. They were given to you by God, just like they're given to the Christian by God. And because we have them in common with the unbeliever, they can become points of contact. Those kinds of issues are points of commonality. So they're things that we can talk about with our unbelieving friend, but then begin to try to connect that to the gospel, connect the distortion that they have made in the way they use those common grace things to the gospel. That, that makes sense. Uh, but so here, here's a good question for you then. Uh, you know, we, we look around and many, most people in the world, uh, you know, have made a mess of their lives and some of the, as at least some of the aspects you've talked about. Um, mm -hmm. But there are some unbelievers who may, you know, maybe they have good marriages. Maybe they've made wise mm -hmm. use of their money. They seem to have it all together, sometimes maybe more than we do. Um, so mm -hmm. are they living foolish lives? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, that is something that definitely needs to be clarified. Because when I say people have made a mess of their lives, as you say, sometimes you, you look at people, lots of people, maybe people that we know who are not Christ followers, but they seem to be doing doing fine. And certainly in, from their own perspective, they are, they're doing fine. So uh, I should clarify then that people engage in two kinds of foolishness. There's moral foolishness, and that's seen in the way they live and the kinds of things that I described a bit ago. But also there's intellectual foolishness, moral foolishness, intellectual foolishness. Intellectual foolishness means they may be doing the right things, but they're not doing them for the right reasons. They're doing them apart from God. They may act right, but they don't think right about God. And so for the person like that, it's still sin, it's still alienation from God, but their sin shows up differently. Some, For some people, it shows up in the way they think and live about themselves, about others, and about life. And so after Romans 1, where the problem is laid out very clearly, and it tells us that all are guilty, then it's going to go on to tell us in Romans 2 that even the religious person who thinks wrongly about God and thinks wrongly about themselves, because they think of God as less holy than he is and of themselves more holy than they are, then they uh, may they may act in moral ways, but they're still thinking wrongly. It's in mm. it's intellectual foolishness. It's yeah. thinking foolishness. So they think then that they can work their way to God by their, their good works, which means if that were true, then it means God would have to settle for that. And, and that means that God would not be completely righteous, that God would not require absolute perfection. The Bible teaches that he does. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. But according to this kind of approach, thinking of God as really less than perfect because he's willing to accept our imperfect works. And then we think better of ourselves than the Bible says we are, that we could actually do it well enough, that we're not completely sinful. And so that's why then when you get to the famous passage in Romans chapter three that asks, after all that's in chapters one and two, you get to chapter three and verse nine that says, what shall we conclude then? 
Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And then it goes on to give this depressing litany of the ways that sin shows up in people. Hmm. And that litany in the middle of chapter three of Romans covers every aspect of the person. From Romans chapter three, beginning in verse 10, all the way to verse 18, those nine verses give a 14 count indictment against all people. So no matter whether it's the morally foolish or the intellectually foolish, people who may live lives that are relatively good, doesn't matter. It's giving this 14 count indictment against all people described in chapters one and two. That's everybody, Jew and Gentile, that there are no exceptions. So when it describes the sinfulness of humanity in that passage, three times it uses the word all as in all people. And then when it describes our relationship, humanity's relationship to righteousness, it uses the word none four times. And it underscores it twice <laughs> with the words not even one. <laughs> and it goes on to describe parts of our anatomy in talking about the sinfulness of humanity. It speaks of our throats and our tongues and our mouths and our lips and our feet and our eyes. It's stressing the whole person is given over to sin. But that whole ugly description starts out with this in verse 11. It says, quote, there is no one who understands. You see the foundation of all that talking and doing, where it's giving these part, physical parts of our anatomy, our, our lips and our throats and our feet and all of that. It's talking about speaking of what we talk about and the, the actions that we engage in, but underlying every piece of that is there is no one who understands. Hmm. The, the foundation of all of that is our thinking. And every person outside of Christ thinks wrongly about God and they think wrongly about themselves. And some act on that and they live immoral lives and others live relatively good lives, but they're not living those lives for God. Good is defined not as God defines it for that person, but as societal mores do. So if the world looks at them, they, they pay their taxes, they don't cheat on their wife, they go to work every day, they're raising their kids, which are all good things. But it's not defined the way God does in terms of God as the standard. And by the time you're done reading Romans chapters 1 through 3, you could be just depressed. It's pretty bleak. Because if God leaves it there... Oh, it's very bleak. Exactly right. If God leaves it there, then all is lost. There is no meaning to life. But there are a few times in, in Scripture, Larry, where uh, there is what some have called the great contrast. And these are just beautiful passages. I mean, one of those is in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, uh, the first three verses are similar to what I've laid out, just very compact. It talks about us being children of wrath, that we are sin dead in our trespasses and sins, it says. But and if God leaves a period there, well, then it's very bleak. But then it says in verse 4, but God, that's the great contrast, but God, who is rich in mercy, and then begins to tell us what the solution to this is. You have the same thing in Romans chapter 3. Romans uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, the first part of chapter 3, very depressing, very bleak, but thanks be to God, he doesn't leave us there. And you get to verse 21, and you have the great contrast. It says, but now. 
but now a righteousness from where? From God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes by faith, that is by believing in Jesus Christ to all who believe for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's God now saying there's a solution to this. <laughs> the solution's not found in yourself because I've just described to you your condition, but the solution is found in my gift to you in Jesus Christ. A righteousness that you don't own, that you can't attain by your own works. A righteousness outside of you, a righteousness from me that comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And we all need this because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it comes by believing. It has to be by believing, by faith. Those are synonymous in the New Testament. Because we cannot do the work. Even the guy who's living uh, that, that good life, he cannot do the work. And then in verses 24 and 25, and I'm almost done with this summary of Romans 1 through 3, <laughs> but it's just a, a tremendous, tremendous passage. But in verses 24 and 25 of Romans chapter 3, you have a succinct statement of the gospel. It says this, we are justified freely by his grace, justified. That's a, a courtroom term that means that God, the righteous judge, has us, the guilty sinner, before him, and he declares us to be righteous. That's what justified means. God says, you are not guilty. You have a clean record. Even though we are sinful, and even though we didn't earn that verdict, Jesus did by his perfect life and his death on the cross. But God justifies us, it says, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed against all people because of their sinfulness. That wrath of God, thanks be to God, was satisfied on the cross. That's what verse 25 is telling us. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement that appeased the holy, righteous wrath of God through the shed blood of Jesus. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And every neighbor, every coworker, every family member you have, whether they are a more, living in moral foolishness or intellectual foolishness, at bottom, it's because they don't think right about themselves. They don't think right about God. And we need to be used as God's instruments to move them to proper thinking about those two things. Amen. So the solution is the same for everyone. The problem is the same for everyone. But the way the problem shows up is different depending on the person, yeah. right? Right. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, did you ever notice, do you ever, you ever think about this, that you know, when Jesus had his various encounters with people, he didn't do a, a one-size-fits-all approach. Some people that Jesus encountered had clearly made a mess of their lives, but others were living relatively good lives, and he approached those people differently, but with the same solution. So just a couple of examples. James, uh, John chapter 4, Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman at a well drawing water. And this is famous uh, discourse, uh, discussion that he has with her. Uh, and he tells her to uh, that you've had uh, 
five husbands. The one you are with now is not your husband. She's made a mess of her life. And Jesus knows that. And she's amazed that he, he knows everything about her. And he, he points that out. But what she needs now is she needs mercy. She's, she's made a mess of her life. She needs, she needs mercy. And so Jesus grants her that mercy. And he tells her, go and, uh, you know, go and sin no more. And then uh, in Matthew chapter 19, you have the rich young ruler. Now, this is a different kind of sinner, still a sinner. But he would never see himself like that Samaritan woman. Mm. But he is. He's a sinner, just a different type. He's an intellectual. He's a religious sinner. He's a good guy. And he comes and he tells Jesus, I've done everything. Jesus says, go now and sell what you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. The Bible says he went away sad because he had many possessions. What had happened was, even though he did all the right things, he didn't think properly about himself, about God, about the world. Those things, those possessions had indeed become his God. And so both of them need the same thing, but you take a different approach to each of them to show them their need for Jesus. Why? Because they are sinning in different, in different ways. Mm. The gospel is absolutely beautiful because it covers every person no matter where they are, no matter what they've done, but that does affect the way we go about our evangelism because it means we want to be wise as we think about who is this person. And in particular, what aspect of the gospel do I need to emphasize to them? That's a helpful, really helpful contrast. So if we're going to sum up what you're uh, telling us then into steps, the first is recognize uh, the, the marvel that the gospel is, mm -hmm. that this message yes. has been given Amen. to us. We have this good news. And second is yes. uh, recognize that you're adequate as a believer to have this conversation because you right. understand what God says about us, all of us, that unbeliever mm -hmm. included. Um, so, but we need to get from there then, uh, being convinced of the need to share the gospel and having the confidence to do it, to actually having conversations with people about it. So, so how do we start yeah. those conversations? Mm. Well, my first recommendation on that would be that we don't look really to start gospel conversations, at least not in the sense of cold start hmm. to those conversations. I'm not a fan of packaged gospel presentations where if we're not careful, then we come off as salespeople who are trying to close the sale. So we're, we're trying pitch. to force, uh, yes, yeah, exactly right. We're trying to you know, force in a very short period of time uh, a, a, an opportunity uh, to, to create, uh, to create an, an instance where we can give the pitch uh, and it comes off, unfortunately, as a sales pitch and then kind of close the sale. So, and that those are situations where we don't know the person, we just sort of come up to them or we knock on the door or we street preach at them. And I don't think that's the norm in the New Testament for the average Christian. Now, I say the average Christian because if you read your New Testament, you see that the apostles did, in fact, have itinerant ministry. They would go from place to place and they would find a, a place to stand and to, and to preach. They're in the marketplace, they would go into the synagogue and different venues. Uh, but that does not appear to be the guidance that the apostles give for us. Now, I want to describe what that guidance is. But before we, we look at that, I want to make clear 
that indeed there are people who are really gifted at evangelism and they have a holy boldness where they can just come up to people, start a conversation and see folks come to the Lord. A pastor friend of mine tells stories about his his father's evangelistic zeal. And it's amazing to hear the stories about how he was just able to come up to people and talk to them and, and, and they come to Christ. So if the Lord uses you that way, then of course we praise him for it. But my experience is that most of our listeners are not that. And again, I think the direction given in the New Testament for most Christians is not that we really start gospel conversations, but I prefer to think of it this way. We engage in conversations that lead to the gospel. So that that's a really uh, helpful way to put it. Can you tell us, uh, let's talk about that, the difference between starting and engaging. Okay, yeah. Be uh I, I want to make that distinction because starting can imply, as I said a bit ago, kind of a cold start. You come up point blank to someone that you don't know. You find a way to sort of force the conversation. When I say engaging, that means using the relationship circle that we have and looking for opportunities to relate the gospel to life. And I see mm -hmm. that in passages like, this is a key passage for me, Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Uh, in verses two through five, in uh, verses two, three, and four, Paul, who wrote that, is talking about his own ministry at first, and he's asking for prayer, and like he did in Ephesians chapter six and verse 20, he says, pray for me that I may communicate, he says clearly, uh, the gospel, and he uh, was anticipating going to make a presentation to Roman authorities, he was under uh, arrest, Paul was, just like he was in Ephesians chapter six. And so he says, pray for me that I'll do that. But then he switches gears in verse five. In verse five, he says this, it's not now Paul's ministry, it's your ministry. You, the Christians, the average Joe and Jane at uh, Colossae. And for us uh, today, he says this, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Now, Paul is saying there, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, outsiders, unbelievers, those outside the family of God. That means that lifestyle matters. That means that our credibility before those who are watching us matters. It means how we represent Christ matters. Not just that we verbally present Christ, but that we with our, our lives model and represent Christ. So sometimes people will ask the question, well, am I supposed to care what unbelievers think about me? <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, the Bible says a number of times that we should care. Here's one, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, but here's some others. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, he said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. First Peter 2, and verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Just a few more. Titus chapter 2 and verse 10. In every way, uh, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And then for pastors, like, like us, the part of the qualifications for pastors, and these are really in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, these are really just qualifications for a spiritually mature person. And 
only those spiritually mature people should be considered for the office of pastor is what we're being told. So all of us should strive to be this. And here's what it says, that we must have a good reputation with outsiders. And so, friends, if we are going to be ambassadors for Christ, as the Bible says that we, we are, and that he is making his appeal to unbelievers through us, which is what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 say, if that's going to happen, then we do need to care what people think about us. We need to represent Christ as ambassadors accurately. So care what people think about us. <laughs> and I might say even on social media, care how you represent Christ. Think about whether or not what I'm saying here is going to enhance my witness to other people. I want to I want to interject in there. Uh, you know, someone yeah. might say, well, they're going to hate us anyways, but they shouldn't mm. be right about the reasons, right? <laughs> right? We shouldn't yeah. be giving yeah. them reasons. The gospel has offense, exactly. but we shouldn't, we shouldn't have our own. Yeah, they're going to hate the gospel naturally. They're going to hate mm -hmm. Christ naturally. But we shouldn't be the reason for the offense is what you're saying. And of course, you're exactly right. So why let your politics be an obstacle to something way more important, namely evangelism? And so before those in your circle of influence, you live Christ before them. And as a result of that, you have credibility to speak and not just credibility to, to speak as the Lord opens doors and you make the most of every opportunity. You look for those opportunities to talk about marriage and talk about money and talk about work and all of these things that we have in common, but then show why those things are distorted the way they are. Bring them back to the problem of sin and the solution for sin in, in Christ. So hopefully you'll have those opportunities and, and you will, if you look for those, pray for those, uh, and live Christ before those in your circle of influence, but you may even be asked. So, and that's a beautiful thing. If somebody comes and says, Hey, what's the deal with you? You live differently. <laughs> you know, so tell me what's going on with you. Here we are at work and everybody's getting laid off. Half the company's laid off. We're all worried about our jobs and you seem to be calm. How do you have this calmness? And then you have an opportunity to tell them, well, first Peter chapter three and verse 15 talks about, assumes people are from time to time going to come and ask you. It says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. To give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And now look, if I think we could all agree, if I'm not living Christ before people, nobody's going to ask me about my hope. Because yeah. it doesn't look any different. Than, than what they have. But Peter assumed we would live as strangers and aliens, he said in the previous chapter, and we would show our good deeds and they would glorify our father on the day he visits us. And so if we're doing that, there are going to be times where people come and say, hey, you're different. Tell me about that. So it's this principle of being before doing. Mm -hmm. We don't just go and try to impose ourselves on people, but we, we be Christians before we speak Christianity. To people, be someone who loves people and communicates that you love people, that you're a regular person that struggles with sin like they do. But I found the solution and I'd love to share it with you. That's great. And I, I note that it says to be ready to give an answer about the hope that you have. 
and, and it's highlighting that. It's about our hope. It's about our confidence yes. in the gospel, why, why our outlook mm-hmm. on life is different. That's great. Mm-hmm. So, so then mm-hmm. as we were enumerating these steps, the third step would be to live a consistent life uh, as a Christian before those in your circle. So they see the way that you're living. So we've mm-hmm. got that in place, but we're not saying that we, you know, have a wordless presentation of the gospel. We, mm-hmm. we do want to then yeah. engage them in conversation. So how do we do that then engaging the, the conversation? Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out, that it doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have to speak it at some point. You most definitely do. You have not evangelized until you give the gospel. So you don't just live the gospel. You give the gospel, but you live the gospel as a platform to do that. I think it is Francis of Assisi, I think, who to whom is attributed this. Uh, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary, <laughs> he says. Now, he's, he's communicating something that is along the lines of what I was just saying, that you know, you want to display the gospel. You want to proclaim the gospel in the way you live, but then to use words as, necess- as necessary is not right because here's the truth. Words are always necessary. You speak the gospel. And so and so, how do we do that? Yes. I, I just wanted to throw in there, uh, you're going to mention later, I think, the class we had on personal evangelism or relational evangelism hmm. recently. Hmm. Uh, Troy taught that. And I just, I just wanted to interject there. We had this topic of conversation in class and uh, we, we hadn't quite finished it all when we got to the end of the class. And a dear brother who's with the Lord now, Vince Sr., uh, he raised his hand. He wanted to interject that we have to be able to give the gospel uh, clearly Amen. and verbally. Amen. And man, praise the Lord for brothers like dear Vince. And anybody who knows a new Vince knew that he actually practiced what he preached there, too. He yeah. did that. He yeah. did that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And so remember that as we think about actually engaging people uh, with uh, the gospel so that we can actually give the the gospel, engaging them in conversation. Remember, we said there are these two categories of foolishness. There's moral foolishness. There's intellectual foolishness. Moral foolishness shows up in the way uh, that people live and things like we've seen in marriage and sex and money and work. And when that causes pain in their lives, then people are open to hear. So they're engaging in some of the same activities that you do, marriage and sex and and work and, and money and all of that, but they're doing it not for God. They're doing it not the way God says. It's going to often cause pain for people in the way they do it. And so that gives you an open door to engage engage folks. The truth of the matter is people cannot live with the consequences of their foolishness. And that's why one Christian thinker said pain, quote, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciousness, in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So people will abuse their bodies with alcohol and all sorts of things. They really can't live with that. And God often uses that in the lives of those otherwise foolish people to get their attention to say, in effect, does that feel good? How's that working out for you? you? You have an example of this with Saul of Tarsus that we know as the Apostle Paul. His Jewish name, Saul, his, his Roman name, Paul. But he's Saul of Tarsus. And many of you know his biography. He's 
persecuting the church. And in Acts chapter nine, he's on his way to persecute more Christians, but the Lord himself stops him in his tracks and appears to him. And the Lord says to him, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. <laughs> he was saying, Paul, it's hard for you to go the wrong way, isn't it? It hurts. I mean, you keep doing it, but it hurts. That's what sin sinners do. They keep banging their head against the wall. But there's there's pain that goes with it. And, and God often uses that pain to get their attention. The book of Proverbs says in chapter 13, verse 15, the way of transgressors is hard. So these are all opportunities to show that sin is the culprit, culprit and to present the answer to sin, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I want to throw in this uh, quick disclaimer. It's not that we say, hey, become a Christian in order to fix your family. You know, what you need is to be reconciled to God. People need to see this vis-a-vis -vis God, not just their horizontal problems uh, with other people and in relationships. It's not become a Christian to fix your family. It's become a Christian to fix what broke your family <laughs> and breaks everything else. I, I was thinking just as you were saying that as well, uh, you know, we... We're saying here, you know more about the sinner than they know about themselves. We also don't want to come and say, uh, I know you're miserable. You know, <laughs> we, we, yeah. we, uh, we don't want to make our presentation that way. But if we're uh, serious about getting to know them and loving them, we will see that they have struggles and That's we will right. be able to offer right. hope. So we're not, we're not yes. uh, trying to make them think, oh, we see how hypocritical or miserable you are, <laughs> even though you're acting like you have it all together. We... We, no, we no, 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 but hope. we just assume that's exactly, oh, thank you. And that's, we just, but we know that that's what's going on. Uh, and then you've got the intellectual foolishness that shows up in people's comments, on the news, in their circumstances, and so on. Uh, they may comment on how bad things are, and you can ask them, well, how, how do you think things should be? And why do you think they've they've gone wrong? Or... You know, in both of these cases where people engage in moral foolishness, intellectual foolishness, those are things that they perpetrate. Those are things that people do. That's sin that people commit. But then there's, in a fallen world, there's just uh, sin that's committed against us. Mm -hmm. We are in a fallen world at times victimized. We are just, uh, we're sufferers. And so that's not moral evil on our part. That is environmental evil. That's just because we live in a fallen world. And so somebody gets cancer. Yes, there would be no sickness. There would be no cancer if it were not that we live in a sin-cursed world. And we, humanity, are what made it a sin-cursed world. But why that particular person has cancer and I don't, that is in, that's in God's hands and God's alone. And so that person is a sufferer. And then that raises the question, why do bad things happen? when somebody gets sick, when your neighbor gets sick, and it gives you an opportunity to try to point them behind the sickness to the larger sickness of sin, and again, God's solution for it. So the partier, you know, the moral foolish, morally foolish person, uh, or the perfect neighbor, they all need Christ in order to change the way they, say, they think. For the partier, it may be obvious, for the perfect neighbor, who's uh, living uh, as he does and seems to have it all together, please understand he is still living, as uh, David Thoreau said, uh, he is still living a life of, quote, quiet 
desperation. Yeah. Since all know God, we can then sometimes engage them directly be about God. So sometimes it's not, you know, the just looking for the opportunity and suffering in their life or question comes up about areas of common interest that we have or some suffering that they, they have. All know God and and some people think about have occasion to think about God from time to time because the book of Ecclesiastes says God has set eternity in the heart of humanity. And people are working and saving and looking for that next vacation, but they are they are restless. And Saint Augustine is the one who said, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find the rest of you. So because of all of that. We have lots of opportunities to, to take advantage of in order to engage people with the gospel. So we uh, get to that point with the relationship. We're invited into uh, that vulnerable spot that they're in, and we have a chance to share hope. Can you give us a succinct way then to package that message of the good news for them? Yeah. Yeah, just a few uh, quick suggestions on that. You know, we I've already said that I'm not a big fan of, you know, programmatic ways of giving the gospel. We don't want to be salesy with this. This is a relational thing. And that's why we had that class. I'll mention it again in a bit that you mentioned, Larry, that relational evangelism class. It is that. It is life on life with, uh, with people. Uh, but we get to the point in that relationship where God has opened a door and we're able to now give the, the gospel directly to the person. Uh, here are the four things you just want to be able to, to think about. You might jot these down. You might put these on a card, keep them in your car, keep them in your wallet just to remind yourself. But you want to communicate as you give the gospel accurately about four things. God, about humanity, about sin. And about Christ, God, humanity, sin, Christ. Those those four things, and not you. You don't have to give a whole theological treatise on any of those, but just God is the major player in His universe, and a person needs to understand that He is the one that we have rebelled against. He is the one who made us. He is the one who owns us. He is the one who has the right to rule over us. And so, God is our Creator and our Master. And then we as humanity, the creature, and that we were made for great things and we are fearfully and wonderfully made and we are made in the image of God. But something is wrong with all of us. And that something is the third thing, sin. Sin has broken our relationship with God and we come into the world as sinners. We don't become sinners, we are sinners. And it doesn't matter the amount of sin that we commit, it doesn't matter the types of sin that we commit. One sin is enough to alienate us from a completely holy God. And that is why the fourth thing was necessary. If we are going to have be reconciled to God, it can only happen by virtue of what God does for us, not what we do in order to reach him. And that is God came down to earth as man in Jesus Christ to live the life that we were supposed to live and he died the death that we deserve. That's what you want to communicate to people. God, man, sin, Christ. Now, even more succinctly than that, we have on our website uh, the bridge uh, illustration of the gospel. 
and it's it's right on. It's it's biblical. That's why we have it there. And if you go to our website, cbctrenton.com, and you go under About Us, then there's a little link to the bridge, and it just has a number of screens uh, that you go through, and you can tell somebody to go to that. You if you have access to a device while you're talking to them, you can go to it with them and say, let's walk through this. And you can do that very simply and quickly. We have that little booklet form as well at our, our ministry center. And then I would just uh, recommend this. Look, brothers and sisters, you're not alone in this. Uh, you pray for opportunities. You look for opportunities. You live Christ. You know who God is. You know uh, what humanity was made to be. You know what the Bible says about sin and Christ is the solution for it. So you're looking for opportunities to use the relationships that God has given you to, to do that, but you're not alone in that. This mm. is us, his church, partnering together to do this. So uh, be sure to invite that friend. You don't need to close the sale, but say, hey, would you like to learn more about Christ? Would you like to learn more about his word? Well, I have a church that teaches and preaches his word. And so we have a live stream every Sunday morning or we have classes going on. And Lord willing, sooner than later, as we're able to start physically getting back together for those kinds of things, you, you can invite them in person for that. Partner with your church in your evangelistic endeavor. Hmm. That's great. Uh, thanks for that. So we've been the last couple of episodes providing additional resources if somebody would like to study more yeah. on this. Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I jotted down a few. Let me uh, give those to you. One is that I found very helpful uh, several years ago. And over 10 years ago now, I did a series um, in uh, at on Wednesday evenings at our church. No, it might have been on Sunday mornings. I can't remember. Uh, but it was called Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted. Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted. And I took that Sunday title mornings. from... Yep. And it's on okay. the website. Yeah. All right. And is it on the website available? Very it good. Is, yep. uh, so, okay. So Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted, but that was based on a book by that title. And it was written by Floyd Schneider. Floyd Schneider. S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R. Schneider. Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted. And here are a few more. Uh, there's a really excellent book called Marks of the Messenger uh, by Mac Stiles, S-T-I-L-E-S, -E Marks of the Messenger. And this is about being the kind of person that we've talked about and then uh, ways that if you are that kind of person, you can be used of God to give the gospel to others. Mark Dever, it's spelled uh, D-E-V-E-R, Mark Dever has a little book, very easy to read, called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. And then the last book that I would recommend is by Will Metzger, M-E-T-Z-G-E-R, Will Metzger. It's called Tell the Truth, Tell the Truth. So all of those are really excellent resources. And then lastly, the class that we've mentioned now a couple of times. Last fall, uh, one of the men in our church, Brother Troy Fisher, led a class, uh, very helpful. Pastor Larry was part of that class. It was called a Relational Evangelism. And uh, the audio and the notes for that are available on our website. Awesome. That was very great. Uh, I'm sure many of our folks will find this really helpful. And so thanks, Pastor Ken, for taking the time to uh, walk us through that. Appreciate it. Uh, so those of you watching, don't forget, if you don't already, follow us on Facebook, um, like our page, Subscribe to our channel on YouTube to make sure you get updates every time we publish new content. As well, you can find these things and many other resources at our website, cbctrenton.com. And uh, 
We also want to, there was one other thing I want to remind you of. Ah, I remember what it is. I knew I was going to forget, but uh, we published a new blog article this morning. Pastor Ken did on his blog. So make sure you go over and check that out if you haven't. Uh, great content there every week. So thanks again for joining us and we'll see you in the next episode. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com or text it to us at 97000.